are now listening to the October 24th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Story of Kings, Sermon, and Transforming Grace. First, let's begin with Story of Kings. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with Story of Kings. Today, we'll continue the story of King Ahab. From our last session, some of the listeners may recall King Ahab having a bout with King Ben-Hadad of Aram. Ben-Hadad raised a massive force against King Ahab, and the confrontation seemed lopsided in favor of Ben-Hadad. That was when God reached out to Ahab through a prophet telling him how the Lord God will help him win this battle against Ben-Hadad. Through the prophet, God gave Ahab instructions on how to march against Ben-Hadad and perhaps, out of desperation, Ahab followed what was told to him. Then God gave Ahab victory in the battle against King Ben-Hadad and his allied forces. When he returned to Samaria victoriously, the prophet delivered another message from God. The prophet said to Ahab to strengthen himself because Ben-Hadad would come up against him again at the turn of the year in the following spring. So today, we'll talk about the stories surrounding the second round of battle between King Ahab of Israel and King Ben-Hadad of Aram. It actually led to Ahab winning again with God's intervention, but sadly, it did not end well. It actually ended quite tragically because Ahab's pride got in the way. The spring came, and just as God's prophet had said, Ben-Hadad came attacking Ahab again. He mustered the Arameans and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. Aphek was a city in northern Transjordan, located at the intersection of the roads that connected important geographic locations, Damascus, Bashan, and the Valley of Jezreel. And there was a reason behind why he set up the fight at that particular location. Analyzing why he lost the war last time, Ben-Hadad observed it was waged in the hills. Therefore, gods of Israel had to be gods of the hills. So this time, they chose the flat land to fight the Israelites. In their limited ability to reason, Ben-Hadad and his troops thought whichever gods that protected Israel would be powerless in the plains. The details of their reasoning is recorded in 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 23. Ben-Hadad's servants articulated, referring to Israel, Their gods are gods of the hills. That is why they were too strong for us. Upon such reasoning, as foolish as it might seem, the Arameans camped on the flat lands of Aphek. When the troops from the two sides matched up, the contrasting sizes of their troops came into plain view. The Bible records that the Israel army was like two flocks of goats while the Aramean army filled the land. 
The small number of soldiers on the Israel side paled compared to the massive number of Aramean soldiers. Just then, a man of God came to Ahab and delivered the word from God. Here is what is said in 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 28. Then a man of God came near and spoke to the king of Israel and said, Thus says the Lord, Because the Arameans have said, The Lord is a God of the mountains, but he is not a God of the valleys, therefore I will give all of this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Seeing the comparably massive size of the Arameans' force, the soldiers on the Israel side could only think that they were doomed to perish. But to that, God told them that they would surely win. The Lord God, who created the whole universe and reigns over it, was about to reveal his true identity. The Arameans, who thought God was just a God confined to the hills, would know he was the God with no bounds. On the seventh day, they had camped against each other. Both sides moved forward to engage in battle. That day, as God had spoken through a prophet, Israel's army was victorious, killing a hundred thousand Aramean foot soldiers. The rest of the Aramean soldiers fled into Aphek, but the wall fell on them, and the remaining twenty-seven thousand Aramean soldiers died as well. As spoken through the prophet, God wanted the people of Israel and Ahab to know that God is the Lord over the hills, the plains, and the universe. They would witness that through this war and return to him. After losing the battle, Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram, ran for his life. Looking for a safe place to hide, he took shelter in an inner chamber of Aphek. Looking for a way out, Ben-Hadad's servants submitted themselves to King Ahab, looking really sorry. They put sackcloth on their loins and ropes on their heads and told Ahab that his servant Ben-Hadad was begging Ahab to let him live. Now, what would you have done had you been Ahab? Apparently, Ahab was more intent on looking magnanimous to people than righteous before God. He asked to the servants if Ben-Hadad was still alive and told them to bring him because Ben-Hadad was his brother. Then they made a treaty to bring the war to a closure. Basically, Ahab reached out and held the hand of Ben-Hadad as if he was the most gracious of kings. Here is what is said in 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 34. Ben-Hadad said to him, The cities which my father took from your father I will restore, and you shall make streets for yourself in Damascus, as my father made in Samaria. Ahab said, And I will let you go with this covenant. So he made a covenant with him and let him go. To save his life, Ben-Hadad would say anything. He pledged he would return all the cities that his ancestors took from Ahab's ancestors. He also invited Ahab to make a street for himself in Damascus. Here, the street means a trading market. Ben-Hadad was saying to Ahab to build a trading market in Damascus, in Aram, and make money, 
Just as Ben-Hadad's father built a trading market and made money in Samaria in Israel by taking the land by force, Ben-Hadad put up these conditions of surrender and in exchange to let him go. Ahab accepted the conditions and let Ben-Hadad go. When facing an insurmountable war, Ahab listened to God's instructions, but once he was victorious, he did not need God. He made decisions on his own without listening to God as if it was he himself that had won the war. God, of course, was not pleased with Ahab. God had won the war, but Ahab was busy glorifying himself. One of the prophets who saw this told Ahab, as spoken in 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 42, Thus says the Lord, Because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall go for his life, and your people for his people. Ahab refused to walk in the path of the Lord God. He would rather satiate his own greed and human glory. To shake him up, God had now spoken to Ahab that he would take his life away in return for his letting Ben-Hadad retain his life. So what was Ahab's reaction? Instead of repenting, he just became sulky. Ahab went to his palace, sullen and vexed, according to verse 43. The Hebrew word for sullen and vexed is Sir Uzef, which means very displeased and offended. He was behaving like a simpleton, simply getting angry at things not going his way, without really thinking about God's way. God showed to Ahab and the people of Israel that he was the true God through the two wars that they could not have won without God. God told his words through many prophets because God wanted Ahab and the people of Israel to return to him. Nonetheless, Ahab remained obstinate and denied God's words. He did not return to God. Next time, we will see how Ahab lived out his life and met its end. Thank you for listening and have a blessed week.
Next is a sermon by Pastor Bill Malter of Arizona Community Church. Today's topic is Having Hope in the Face of Death. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Bill. Here we go. Um, We are starting a brand new sermon series today in Brace Yourselves because uh, we are going to be covering a lot of ground and it's going to be hard hitting. Um, It's called Why Nations Fall. Now, the motivation for this sermon series is very simple. I see the United States drifting into very dangerous waters. Is anybody with me? Okay, good. And you can go ahead and make noise in this sermon. I'm not kidding. There's going to be things um, that hopefully that you will agree with. I might say some things that are going to challenge you, and I hope they do. Unless we turn things around in this country, uh, the country that you and I grew up with that we know and love um, could be a distant memory if it isn't already, if it isn't already. This is not a politically motivated sermon. I've said this in every service. It's not a politically motivated sermon. It is a biblically motivated sermon, but it will have political overtones. Not necessarily Democrat versus Republican, but I'm going to be talking about a lot about the principles that this country was started on and how we are slowly drifting away from those principles. And I think whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, hopefully you can agree, we can agree at least on that much. Every word that comes out of my mouth, Lord willing, is going to come straight from the scriptures. That being said, if you want to dispute a point with me in this sermon series, I'm fine with that. Like if if you have something that you can correct me on, correct me. The Bible says a wise man receives a rebuke. So I'm always open to being Um, taught something new. But if you want to come and debate a point with me, come with your Bible in hand, because I'm going to be, Lord willing, building biblical arguments. And so if you want to dispute a point, come with your Bible and build a biblical argument for it. And if you can convince me, great, praise God. I'm always in search of the truth. But Lord willing, um, you won't have to do that. Hopefully everything you hear is right from the scriptures. So are you ready? Brace yourselves, strap yourselves in. Here we go. So I begin with one of the most important and powerful truths in all the scripture, and it's this, Psalm 33, 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Amen? Amen. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Just let the weight and the truth of that verse fall upon you this morning. You know what's interesting? I've been a pastor a really long time. I've been in full-time ministry for almost over 23 years, and I've never once preached a sermon based on this verse. Shame on me. 
Shame on me. And I would guess that a lot of pastors in a lot of churches haven't necessarily preached sermons on this, but it's, it's time we do because it is such an important truth in the Bible that it cannot be overlooked. You know, as one surveys world history, we see that every nation that has ever existed has tried to find the key or the secret to being a blessed nation. And what I mean by a blessed nation is this, is a nation that is healthy, strong, well-ordered, and thriving, okay? Every nation that has ever existed has wanted to be healthy, strong, well-ordered, and thriving. There's not a nation that has ever existed that didn't want that for its people. Now, different nations at different times in world history have implemented different strategies, different philosophies, different forms of government, all in an attempt to unlock that secret to being a blessed nation. Even to this very day, there is debate in this country about the best way to be a blessed nation. There are many, surprisingly, I can't even believe I'm about to say this, there are many that are advocating for socialism as the answer to how America is going to be blessed moving forward. And yet the great irony is that there really should be no debate at all. As the scriptures have made it abundantly clear, the key to being a blessed nation is being a nation whose God is the Lord. Amen? That's it. It's the best political advice, blessed political wisdom in the scriptures is right there before you. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Not just a nation that believes in a God, but a nation that believes in the God. And that's very important. You know the God that I'm talking about, the God that is revealed in the pages of scripture, the God who made the heaven and earth, Genesis chapter one, the God who made Adam and Eve, the God who called Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who shepherded the nation of Israel, and the God who came as Israel's Messiah, took on human flesh, died on the cross, and rose three days later. Blessed is the nation that believes in that God and whose hope is in that God. So here's what I wanna do. I'm gonna take us to a passage of scripture as we're talking about blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, let's talk about just for a minute what a blessed nation looks like. So I want to direct our attention to Psalm 144 today. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Psalm 144, beginning in verse 12. So church, it's my honor to present to you the word of God this morning. This is what a blessed nation looks like. May our sons in their youth be like plants full grown. Our daughters like corner pillars cut for the structure of a palace. May our granaries be full, providing all kinds of produce. May our sheep bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields. May our cattle be heavy with young, suffering no mishap or failure in bearing. May there be no cry of distress in our streets. Blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. Amen. Again, church, I present to you the word of God this morning. Folks, I hardly know where to start. I could preach weeks on just this one passage alone. It is loaded. Look at what verse 12 says. May our sons and their youth be like plants full grown, our daughters like corner pillars cut for the structure of a palace. Do you want to know what a blessed nation looks like? A blessed nation is a nation with strong youth. Amen? A blessed nation is a nation with strong youth, strong sons and daughters. They are sons. The sons are like plants full grown. Daughters are like corner pillars cut for the structure of a palace. And yet consider our current generation of young people. They are now being called the most entitled generation ever. How did we get here? Now, that doesn't mean everyone. Because you see kids up here on stage leading worship. They're, they're the exception to this generation. But this generation, by and large, is being called the most entitled generation ever. 
We have failed to biblically discipline our children, so they lost all respect for authority. That could be because we've taken the Ten Commandments out of the schools. One of those Ten Commandments is honor thy father and mother. They've lost all respect for parents. They're disobedient to their parents. They're disobedient to their teachers. Again, if you're a teacher in the public school system, bless your heart. I fear for our teachers today. They can't even discipline their the own children in their classroom for fear of being sued. We fear the parents. It's like we, we as parents say, no, you can't discipline our children. We'll do that. And then we don't do that. We don't even do it. And we've stripped that from the teachers to do that. You wonder why our youth are why, like they are today. This is one huge reason. We have straddled our youth with a massive amount of personal and national debt. The national debt is upwards of $26 trillion. The average student getting out of college a public school, not a private, but a public school will have roughly around 26,000 in personal debt. No wonder our youth have such a sense of hopelessness. You know, there are different forms of slavery. And one of the worst forms of slavery is economic slavery. It's when you economically enslave someone. And that's what we've done to the younger generation. And we wonder why they're hopeless. We wonder why they are rebelling against the current system and fighting. Is it because we have strapped them into a form of slavery? We give them, they have no hope of ever, 26 trillion, and that's just national debt. Personal debt is killing them. But here's the worst part of it all. On top of this, we have taken our sons and daughters to churches where entertainment has been the name of the game and the true gospel has been rarely preached. We have entertained our children to death in, of all places, the local church. We have not called them to radical repentance to count the cost, pick up their crosses and follow Jesus with all of their hearts. We've only taught them about the love of God and not the wrath of God. We have not focused on the day that God is going to call the world to an account and them as well. No, we've entertained them and we've had fun with them and then we've sent them home and they haven't been changed. They have not been changed. Shame on us. And by the way, this isn't a sermon to shame the youth because a lot of what I'm talking about finds its origins in us who are adults. It finds its origins in us who are adults. Folks, this is just the tip of the iceberg with regard to our sons and daughters. We'll be talking about that more in the weeks to come. But I want to briefly, for the sake of time, go all the way down to the very last set of yellow words right there. May there be no cry of distress in our streets. The truly blessed nation has no cry of distress in their streets. Yet consider this current state of affairs in our country. The riots in Portland alone have lasted for two, over two months straight. Incredible. Every night, two months straight, no break. It is as if war has broken out in Portland. On the streets of LA County alone, there are upwards of 60,000 homeless people. And massive homeless camps have taken over entire parts of the city. Our police are not welcomed in certain parts of our cities any longer and are regularly being attacked on the streets by, you guessed it, the youth of our country. Again, we're talking about, may there be no cry of distress on our streets. Police are not welcome in certain parts of the street. They're being attacked by our youth. Prostitution, of course, is in every major city, every small city, but here's what's really distressing. Child sex trafficking can now be found on the streets of every major city in the United States. And guess what state is leading the way? Arizona, Arizona. We have a national opioid and drug problem. From 1999 to 2017, more than 700,000 people have died from drug overdose. Those are just who have died from it, let alone that whose lives have been ruined because of it, not only physically, but in other ways. 
when I was writing this particular sermon, 59 people alone were shot in Chicago over, over the weekend. Three of them died. Let me ask you a question. Do these sound like the statistics of a blessed nation? <laughs> they don't. There is any, the crying is coming out from our streets in every major city in America. Now, this is going to sound a little crazy, but did you know that Hitler and the Nazis had an interest in the occult and mysticism? You wonder, they, they did. You can read on it. It's interesting. Um, they, they, to a certain degree, they had an interest in the occult and mystic things and spiritual things. Um, that fact worked its way into a modern-day movie. Do you know what movie that is? Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. So here's the deal. This movie takes place in the 1940s and centers around Hitler's quest to find the Ark of the Covenant. Now, it's a fictional movie with a fictional plot. In other words, there's no evidence that Hitler ever looked for the Ark of the Covenant. Yes, he, he had a mystic side and was into the occult to some, but there's no evidence that he was pursuing the Ark of the Covenant. But the makers of this movie got really smart, and they built this movie on a fictional plot, which is, okay, Hitler is after the Ark of the Covenant. And Hitler thinks that if Germany can gain possession of the Ark of the Covenant, that God will go before the nation of Germany and bless them in all that they do. That if they put it out in front of their armies, God will lay waste the armies as they march across this world. Do you want to know the irony of this? Here's the irony, is that you do not need the Ark of the Covenant or any other religious artifact to be blessed by the Lord. You simply need to be a nation that looks to him and trusts in him and follows him and obeys him. Amen? This is the key to being a blessed nation. And it's true for us too as individuals. You don't need some artifact or something in order to be blessed. You need a heart that is devoted to the Lord. This is the promise of scripture that if you follow the Lord with all of your heart, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. He will make your path straight, not just as individuals, but for nations. Sadly, our nation is increasingly in danger, in my opinion, of looking everywhere other than the Lord. Listen, the nation that wanders from the Lord is a nation that wanders from his blessing. And the farther that the nation wanders, the farther that those blessings are going to be in the rear view mirror. And that is why God strongly warned the nation of Israel time and again to be careful not to forget the Lord your God. Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 11. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules, and his statutes, which I command you today. You know what's fascinating about this? Deuteronomy is, um, it's called Deuteronomos. That's the word, Deuteronomos, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomos. Deutero meaning second, nomos meaning law, the second giving of the law. So the first time the Israelites got the Ten Commandments was in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 20. That's when Moses got the Ten Commandments on the top of Mount Sinai. Then Moses led the people, right? For 40 years, they wandered in the desert, but then they end up on the plains of Moab and Moses is about to die and he gives the law again. He speaks it to them again. Deuteronomy is basically three big sermons that Moses gives, but he reiterates the law. It's the second giving of the law. What's fascinating to me is that Moses, so God had just led the Israelites out of Egypt, miraculously doing all these miracles for them. And when they get to the plains of Moab, Moses says, don't forget God. It's incredible. You would think that this nation that had just seen God do all this stuff, they would be the last people to forget God. As a matter of fact, you would think, I don't even need to mention don't forget God because you just saw all that God did. So there's no need to mention it. No, but he does. Because that's how easy it is for individuals and nations to lose sight of God. 
And you want to know what's so fascinating about this verse? Is that God gives the reason why the Israelites would be prone to forget him. And you know what that reason is? It's prosperity. It's prosperity. Listen to the very next verse, set of verses. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up. It'll be lifted up. You'll become proud. And you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Does that sound even remotely familiar? Does that sound like our country, doesn't it? To a certain degree. Listen, there's nothing wrong with being financially successful, but there's an inherent temptation that comes when you are successful. And that is those riches blind you and they pull you away from seeing what you really need to be seeing. And that is God keeping your eyes on him. It makes me think of the church in Laodicea. Remember Revelation? God has letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And one of those churches is the church at Laodicea. And this is what he says to the church in Laodicea. The church says, for, this is the church thinking to itself, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. I don't need anything. My bank account's full. My cupboards are full. I've got chariots and horses. I've got everything I need. I don't need anything. I don't need help from anyone, including God. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. It's incredible. This is what happens when a nation gets distracted from things of the Lord. But before we try to fix the focus of this country, it's best that we start with our own hearts. Let me ask you a personal question right now. Is there anything distracting you from the Lord? Is there anything distracting you? Be honest. Are, is your heart set on worldly things or is your heart and mind fixed on things above as you are called to do in the book of Colossians? Set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That is where our heart and our minds are to be. Now, I need to bring up an important truth, and this is a tough one. For a nation to be truly committed to the Lord, it must be committed to obeying the Lord, no matter how difficult it might be to obey him. Okay, because sometimes obeying the Lord is difficult. So it's one thing to say, oh yeah, we're a nation that is committed to the Lord. But to be truly committed, we have to be committed to obeying him. In other words, it's easy to be a nation that honored God with our lips and have hearts that are far from him. As a matter of fact, this very thing happened 2,000 years ago. Jesus said of the elites in his generation, the people that were leading the nation of Israel 2,000 years ago, he said to them, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You know what that tells me? It tells me that people in positions of power in a nation can honor God with their lips, but have hearts that are far from him. And whether you are a Democrat or a Republican sitting in this room right now, I'm going to offend both of you. And here's how I'm going to offend you. Many of our political leaders on both sides of the aisle are honoring God with their lips, but with hearts that are far from him. Amen. That may hurt. You may not believe it. But if it happened in Jesus's generation, trust me, it's happening in this generation. But it's not just the political leaders. The entire nation can be a nation that honors God with their lips, but have hearts that are far from him. If we look to the Bible, we see that the nation of Israel was told that just acknowledging the Lord was not enough. They needed to faithfully obey him. Again, Deuteronomy chapter 28, look what it says. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord, your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, 
The Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the earth. Let me just stop right there. What is the goal of every nation? Every nation wants to be high above the other nations, lifted and exalted above all other nations. What's fascinating to me is God takes this little itty bitty tiny nation. He says, if you will trust me, I will raise you above all the other nations. Incredible. You know, as Americans and as, as our country, we're, we're like, well, how do we maintain our dominance in the world today? The key is looking to the Lord your God. The key isn't going to be better economics, better politicians, better laws. It's going to be a nation that looks to the Lord and trusts in him. And let him raise us up. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. This is what the scriptures say. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. You're about to hear a big, long list. I'm going to have another slide here. It's one blessing after another. And he's going, God's saying, all of these blessings are going to overtake you. They're literally overwhelm you if you'll do If you're careful to do what I'm saying, this is what's gonna happen to you. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God, here are the blessings. Blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall be you when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. You don't need the Ark of the Covenant to have your enemies defeated before you. You simply need to have a heart that trusts in him and looks to him. He is your defender. He is your strength. He is your fortress. Amen? Listen, the Bible warns about nations, Israel, putting its its trust in horses and chariots. This is what Egypt did. This is what old ancient Israel did. And it's the danger of any great power, whether it be Athens, Rome, the British Empire, is that we as the citizens begin to glory in the number of chariots and horses we have instead of the one who gave us those chariots and horses. Amen? Now notice what this passage says. Let me just go back real quick. If you faithfully obey and are careful to do, folks, a haphazard, lackadaisical approach will not do. For a nation, this nation, to be truly blessed, it must, we must, Be faithful to obey and careful to do all that the Lord has commanded us, no matter how hard or painful that might be. And that will mean making some hard choices. It will mean making hard choices with our children. It means that we need to discipline our children according to the scriptures. Not according to the world, not according to the latest parenting books that are on the shelves at Barnes and Noble, but we need to discipline with biblical discipline. We need to train our children to honor their father and mother to not use the name of the Lord in vain, to keep themselves pure, to not have idols. This is what we need to do. Yet we've raised our children in a, and I'm guilty of this. I mean, you know me, sports is an idol for me. And it has become an idol-making factory in this country, sports has, and we have trained our children to make idols out of sports. That's our generation. So of no fault of their own, they were raised this way by me and by many of us. Listen, This is very important. A nation can falsely believe that they are safely under the mighty hand of God. Every nation likes to think we're, God's got our back. We're under the mighty hand of God. God's got our back. God's on our side. When in fact, God stands in opposition to a nation. By the way, if you go out on the street right now and ask a hundred random people, what's the worst thing that could ever happen to a nation? You know what one answer you wouldn't get? It's the right answer. And here's the right answer. The worst thing that could ever happen to a nation is when God is opposed to that nation, when God sets his face against that nation. And yet you go out and ask 100 people on the street today, you would not get that answer. A nation can falsely believe they are safely under the mighty hand of God when in fact God stands in complete opposition to that 
nation. And folks, when God is standing in opposition to a nation, that nation is in huge danger. And if you ever need reminding of that, never forget of a little something that happened to a city, two cities named Sodom and, yeah, I didn't think, I think you knew that story. Yeah, I don't even need to remind you of it, right? Genesis 19, this is what it says. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of that city. And listen to this, and what grew on the ground. He laid waste Sodom and Gomorrah. And by the way, this isn't a story. This is a historical event. This happened in history. This happened. God will lay waste a nation that lives in defiance to him, any nation that lives in defiance to him. And if you need more proof of that, just look at what God did to other wicked nations in the Bible. Look what he did to Egypt in Exodus chapter 14. They crossed the Red Sea and were drowned. The armies of Egypt were drowned as they crossed the Red Sea. Look what God did to Assyria in Isaiah chapter 10. The list goes on and on and on. Now, there is no doubt that one of the main reasons that God doesn't wipe more nations out like he did Sodom and Gomorrah, Egypt and Assyria, is that God is being patient, kind, and merciful. That's why. But a nation that is living in defiance to God should not presume on the riches of his patience, kindness, and mercy. God is under no obligation to withhold his judgment and wrath on a nation living in defiance. Why has God not wiped this country out? Folks, there is plenty of disobedience in this country. There is enough wickedness in this country that God should have wiped us out a long time ago. Why hasn't he? I don't know. All I know is that it means that he's being exceedingly rich in his patience, kindness, and goodness towards us. And the last thing that we need to be doing right now is presuming on that, presuming that that's going to last forever. If that isn't scary enough, it gets even more scary. It's one thing for a nation to defy God and to live in defiance of what he has commanded. It's another thing to take what he has commanded and twist it and to call what is good evil and then to take what is evil and call that good, right? Isaiah 50, 20 says this. It says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. And in case you're confused, and I've said this before, when the Bible pronounces a woe, it's the worst curse possible upon you. Woe is you, the worst curse upon you. It's God's way of expressing the most dire of warnings and the full extent of his displeasure. And he's saying, woe to anyone individual or nation that would call good, that which is good evil and that which is evil good. And in case you are unaware of just how easy and often it is to enact unrighteous laws, it happens all the time. And it's been happening all the time. As a matter of fact, if we go back 2000 years to the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel had the 10 commandments, but you know what they did? They started enacting all these traditions, laws, and rules and many of these traditions, laws, and rules stood in direct violation to the commands of God. As a matter of fact, when Jesus showed up on the scene, he said to them this, he said, he said, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. Here's an example of, of a nation establishing unjust laws in direct violation of the commands of God. Now, if you don't know what was happening here, the 10 commandments, one of the 10 commandments is honor thy father and mother. And so in Jesus's generation, the people, instead of helping their mother and father out later in life and caring for their mother and father, they came up with a loophole and they said, we'll take the money that I should be using to help my mother and father in their old age, and I'm going to dedicate it to the temple. 
right? And of course, by dedicating it to the temple, it was self-serving. They would probably do it in front of the priests so that they would get a bunch of favors and kickbacks and who knows what else. And Jesus goes, you think it's noble to, to not helping your parents to give money to the temple? No, this is an example of an unjust law that you have passed. And I think most of us here would agree that our own country, the United States, is walking down a very dangerous road, just as Israel did, in which we are becoming ever more tolerant and accepting of behaviors, traditions, and lifestyles that God himself does not tolerate or accept in any way, shape, or form. Are you with me? Even to the point, I'm not sure that you're with me, even to the point where we are now enacting laws which make legal that which is evil in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, Here's where I'm going to step on some toes, so brace yourselves. I make no apologies for what I'm about to say because I think what I'm about to say is all biblically based. If you take exception to what I say, come and talk to me after. A wise man receives a rebuke. I will gladly receive your rebuke. But if you want to come talk to me after the service or write me an email, it better be grounded in Scripture because what I'm going to tell you is grounded in Scripture. We have enacted laws that allow mothers to slaughter their babies in their wombs. Um, This is abortion, and I know that that's a hot topic, but if I need to build, and I don't have time to, but if you want me to build a biblical case for when life starts, the Bible is abundantly clear. As a matter of fact, the Bible says, before I created you, I knew you. You know what's fascinating to me? That the only group of people in this country that are allowed to legally murder someone are mothers. That's fascinating to me. Now, I want to say something very careful and sensitive here. No doubt in a room this size and in a church this size, there are people that have chosen abortion. And if you have, what you need to know is mercy abounds. God forgives. Listen, the mistakes I've made, I've made just as bad mistakes in my life. So don't don't feel any shame if you've fallen down this trap. That's okay, because God's mercy reaches everywhere. I want you to know that, and I want you to believe that. There's no shame being sought here. But I want you to know that this is a great example. Now, here's what's fascinating to me. God has ordered the natural world. Like, let's just take nature. In nature... When an animal has offspring, who's the most protective of those offspring in most cases? The mother. That's why when you're out in the woods and you see a mother with her cubs, what do you do? You run. You don't mess with mama bear. You would rather run into data bear than mama bear. But my point is this, God has ordered nature so that the most protective of the young and innocent are mothers. And yet we have enacted laws which have emboldened our mothers to slaughter their children. And some of you are going to be offended by that because you're going to go, no, 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 it's a woman's right to choose. Folks, our policies have to be grounded in Scripture, not in Washington. Enough on that. We have enacted laws which radically redefine marriage to include lifestyles that are wicked in the eyes of the Lord. More on this in future sermons in this series, but we have enacted laws. We have redefined marriage. Marriage is defined in, in Genesis as one man and one woman for life. How about this one? You'll all agree with this. We have enacted laws that reward criminals and penalize those who have been victimized. Amazingly, you have more rights as a violent protester than you do a business owner. You have more rights to destroy someone's business than to start a business. That's where we are in this country. How did we get here? And remember, I'm talking about enacting. We aren't just in violation of the commands of God. We have twisted and enacted laws that are evil and we're calling them good. We're calling them noble. Here's one. We have enacted laws which which perpetuate irresponsible behavior, government dependence, and destroy families. And I'm talking about our current welfare system. I recently read a quote from Walter Edward Williams, who is a prominent African-American economist, commentator, and distinguished professor of economics at George Mason University. 
He is quoted as saying, and this is his quote, not mine, quote, the welfare state has done to black Americans what slavery couldn't do, and that is to destroy the black family, end quote. And by the way, there are far more Caucasians on welfare than African-Americans, and I have no doubt that our current welfare system has done just as much damage to the Caucasian family as it does to the black family. We have enacted laws. By the way, I, the greatest book I ever read in seminary was not, a sem, was not a theology book. It was a book called The Tragedy of American Compassion. And this book talks about the tragedy. The great tragedy was that in the 1930s and 40s, we, the people, allowed the responsibility for loving our neighbors, we gave it over to the government. We said, you take care of those that are in need. You take care of my neighbor when he's down and out. And so when our neighbor got down and out, instead of helping them, we said, call City Hall. They'll take care of you. That's the tragedy of American compassion is our government said, we'll be the ones to take care of you. And we said, okay, that's fine. And again, the more that we give the government, the more it'll take. That's just the reality of it. Folks, we can never lose sight that when a nation enacts ungodly laws that are in clear violation of the commands of God, it's a huge deal in God's mind. Leviticus, listen to this. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. So remember he said, if you obey me, I'll do this. Now he says, if you disobey me, here's what's gonna happen. Look at the very first line. I will visit you with, what's that word right there? Panic. Does that sound remotely familiar to what's going on in our country? Is that just me? Is this country gripped with panic? Yes, it is. Fear has swept over this country. Now, I'm not saying that if you wear a mask, you're gripped for fear. I wear a mask, you know, I'm not saying any of that. What I'm saying, though, that is a spirit of fear has gripped this country. Look at what the next line says. It sounds like COVID. In a weird sort of way, it sounds like COVID. Listen to what it says. With wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heartache. <laughs> it's almost as if it was written today. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. Now listen to this. I will set my face against you. Again, go out and ask 100 people on the street, what's the worst thing that could happen to a nation? That's the last answer you'll ever find. But folks, it's the right answer. The worst thing that can happen to a nation is when God sets his face against it. And you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you. And you shall flee when no one pursues you. And in spite of this, you will not listen, if you will not listen to me. So in spite of all of this, I will visit you with panic and disease and all this stuff. If you still won't listen, which is amazing in and of itself, he goes, if you still will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. And I will break the pride of your power. And I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. And your strength shall be spent in vain for your land shall not yield its increase. And the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. Folks, the height of ignorance and arrogance is for a nation to violate the commands of God and think that God is just going to look the other way. That is the height of ignorance and arrogance. Many people worry about God's coming judgment upon the United States when I think a strong case can be made that it is already here. The fact that he has not wiped us off the face of the planet is amazing, but it tells me that he's being patient, kind, and merciful towards us, at least still. But folks, what this nation needs more than anything, and listen very carefully to me, this is so critically important. What this nation needs more than anything is what every nation needs that is wandering for the Lord. And it is not better politicians and better laws. It is that the Holy Spirit bring genuine repentance across this land. That's what this nation needs. But folks, if you and I have distracted hearts, who are going to be the lights in this generation? 
If your heart doesn't fully belong to the Lord, then how can you expect this nation to have a heart that belongs to the Lord? And if you are not being bold in your sphere of influence to share the gospel and to be a light and to put yourself out there for the Lord, who's going to do it? If not you, you're the only Christian most people know. And if you're not going to be bold and courageous, then how can you even look at society and cast stones? You, the church, we, the church, are the hope of this generation because we are the ones that know the gospel. We are the ones that know the true and living God. And we are the ones that have been put in this generation to call people to him. Amen? That's the call, folks. Listen, it's one thing when a nation loses its way, but what's even worse is that as Christians fight to save this country from going down the path of moral and further moral and spiritual decline, what we as Christians must be more diligent than ever to see is that the church remain pure and that our hearts, our personal hearts remain pure and wholly committed to the Lord. Folks, it is one thing when a nation acts in disobedience to the Lord, how much more tragic it is when God's own bride is acting in disobedience to him. And yet my great concern is that many Christians are obsessed about the current state of our country, as we should be. We all should be burdened about the current state of our country. But many of us have little concern for the state of the church or our own hearts. It starts with the person in the mirror, folks. And it starts with the church. Listen, too many churches have let their pastors, elders, and leaders bring worldly practices, worldly philosophies, and worldly ideologies into the local church. And they haven't batted an eye. Pastors who are obsessed with building kingdoms and empires for themselves have brought all sorts of garbage into the church. Entertainment being the big one. Folks, worse than a nation falling is when the church falls. And I guarantee you, if the church in America falls, and we have stumbled, but if we fall any further, there's no hope for this nation. We are the ones that know the true and living God. We're the ones with the gospel and we are the ones to be out there proclaiming it, putting ourselves out there no matter the cost to us, amen? Hey, this is sermon number one. <laughs> They're all gonna be intense like this, so brace yourselves. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we come before you. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And Lord, when this country was started, the very declaration of independence speaks of you, the creator, which is incredible. Our founding fathers knew that you existed and built this country on the foundation that God exists. Father, bring revival to this country. God, I pray for the youth in Portland that are destroying things. Lord, they're lost. And I pray for the Christians in Portland, the church in Portland, embolden the Christians there to proclaim the gospel. May the revival that this country needs start there. And Lord, it is not beyond your strength to do just that. But Lord, make us bold where we are today. God, the days of thinking about ourselves, trying to protect ourselves, those days are over. God, help us to live sold out for you. Life is too short to live for ourselves. May we live sold out for you. May we be a generation of Christians boldly proclaiming the gospel, not just your love, but God, may we warn this generation of your coming wrath. God, the beginning of, uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And may we, God, be Christians that aren't gripped by fear, but call people to love you with their whole hearts, to walk in a holy, reverent fear before you. So God, make us bold as we go. We love you and we pray these things in Christ's name. And the church said with me, amen.
Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries has the opportunities for anyone to volunteer in editing, producing the program, or even reviewing the broadcasts at our office. You don't have to be an expert. We are excited to teach anyone that is willing to learn. If you are interested in learning how to be an editor, producer, or even a reviewer, please contact us at 602-866-8999 or email us at heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. Following is a program, Transforming Grace. Hi, I'm Leslie Martin. What a joy to be with you today as I share my book, Transforming Grace. I want to again thank Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries for asking me to be a part of this ministry series. My church, Calvary Phoenix, has been a longtime partner with Heart and Soul, and it is an honor to have been asked to share in this way. Join me now as we look at God's grace together in this humble book about His unending grace and love for each one of us. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked Him, and He would have given you living water. John chapter 4, verse 10. Jesus knew the deep longing of her heart for hope and love. In his caring way of addressing this Samaritan woman, Jesus tenderly encouraged her. I know your heart. I know that if you really knew who I was and what I was offering, you would readily respond to me. Jesus knew her heart. Everyone else thought she was a brazen sinner without a concern for eternal realities. But Jesus knew that deep down inside her sin-clogged heart, she was crying out for a relationship with God. She longed for the Messiah. She was thirsty, not physically like Jesus, but deep down in her soul, she was thirsty for God. As we read further in the Bible's account of her story, one of the first topics she brought up was, We know that Messiah is going to come. Are you really him? Really? There was a desire in her heart, and Jesus knew she would open up if she actually realized he was the promised Messiah. Jesus also knew how careful he had to be in talking with this woman who had been scarred with the hurts of society and sin. This is encouraging as we consider the people around us. We may have been discouraged at the apparent lack of interest shown by our friends or family to the things of God. We may have thought something like this, I've prayed for them forever. They are no nearer to Jesus than they were when I started. In fact, they seem farther away. There's no hope. I give up. Forget it. This person is a lost cause. We can lose heart in praying for the lost because we can only observe their outward appearance and don't see their heart. God sees the heart. What is on the outside is not necessarily a reflection of what is on the inside. Outwardly, the Samaritan woman was perceived as an immoral, sinful person. But on the inside, she was crying out for God. She was probably the person most receptive to Jesus in that whole city. God was going to use this woman to bring the message of grace to her people. When they saw her transformation and heard her testimony, 
their lives would be changed. God is still using the story of this woman as an encouragement for us. As described in the book of Acts, one of the first areas that heard the good news of Jesus after Jerusalem was Samaria. Philip the evangelist visited Samaria and saw a huge evangelistic movement explode among these rejected people. In village after village, the Samaritans turned to Christ with the result that there were thousands who came to believe in Jesus the Messiah. You can look this up in Acts chapter 8, verses 4 and 5. I believe that what happened here by the well had a lot to do with the work that the church was later going to do in Samaria. The first seeds of God's grace were planted by Jesus in the heart of this sinful woman. God's grace towards us is a grace that seeks and finds lost, hopeless, rejected people. His grace is for anyone and everyone. He goes the distance in taking the initiative in reaching out to us. Think about the time that you were stuck and far away from God. Do you remember the moment that Jesus found you in your desperate mess? Perhaps you're experiencing that moment right now. Jesus' grace is a grace that finds us in the mess we have made in our lives. Don't hesitate to invite him into the hopeless areas of your life where many questions lie unanswered. He can handle it. Jesus said, The Son of Man came to find lost people and save them. Luke 19.10 The Samaritan woman knew she was a desperate person. She was a notorious sinner, and though everyone else had judged and rejected her, in her heart— She was crying out for help. She was helpless to extricate herself from her miserable situation. Jesus knew, however, that she was prepared to accept him when she understood he was the long-awaited Messiah. John chapter 4, verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him. Our wonderful Jesus sees our heart. People can only see the outside, and based on their limited observations, they often draw an incomplete conclusion. Only God knows the inner longings of the soul. God understood the heart of this sinful Samaritan woman. Jesus knew that if she only realized who he was, she would say, Give me a drink. I want salvation. I accept you as the Messiah. He looked right through the outward behavior and saw the inner person. The fourth chapter in the book of John contains one of the longest conversations of Jesus recorded in the Bible. I think it's highly significant that he spent so much time with this despised Samaritan woman. Jesus places enormous value on people. He came to save that which was lost, not that which thought it had no need for a Savior. He came to seek those who know they have a need, a tremendous, huge, gaping need, and are desperate for help. In his conversation with the Samaritan woman, Jesus revealed his identity. Up until this point in Jesus' ministry, he had only given hints about who he was and his mission. It wasn't until he met this woman that he freely revealed his identity. This is important. He didn't even reveal himself to his family as completely as he did to this Samaritan woman. Similarly, 
He hadn't told his disciples that he was God the Messiah, but he told the sinful Samaritan woman. Jesus had many opportunities to reveal his identity. One prime opportunity had been at a recent Passover in Jerusalem. There were multitudes of people in Jerusalem for the biblical celebration of Passover. It was one of three major feasts that the Jewish men were commanded to attend every year. At Passover, they made a pilgrimage from their homes to go to the temple in Jerusalem. It's been estimated that upwards of 180,000 people filled Jerusalem during the Passover celebration. In John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, it says, Now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, beholding his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. For he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Many of Jesus' followers were a part of the multitudes crowding Jerusalem. They had come to believe in him because of the signs and miracles he had done. They followed him, but he did not reveal who he was to this huge crowd of believers. He did not reveal that he was God in the flesh, the Messiah, the Holy One who had been prophesied from the very beginning of this world to the first people God created, Adam and Eve. He didn't declare his identity to his disciples or his family. He told the least likely person. He chose to reveal the incredible revelation that he was the I am God in the flesh to this Samaritan woman. God does things differently than we would imagine, doesn't he? If I were planning Jesus' announcement of his Messiahship, I would have done it at the Passover, where there were thousands of his followers. But God doesn't do things that way. He chose a small, dusty, out-of-the-way village in Samaria, a place no Jew ever visited. At that little well, he met a despairing woman. The way God views things and the way we view things are very different, because God knows the end from the beginning. He knew that not only was this Samaritan woman seeking a Savior, but that an entire town was also ready to receive a Savior. There was an outcast community of Samaritans who were desperate for salvation. Jesus seeks out the people with the greatest need. When he was born, who were the first to hear about it? The shepherds in the fields. It wasn't made known to the priests or announced to the scribes. It wasn't proclaimed to the Pharisees or the rabbis. The good news was given to some lonely shepherds sitting out in the fields guarding their sheep at night. We can never guess how God is going to act. That makes things really exciting, doesn't it? We can't figure God out, but when he acts, the impact is incredible. Jesus shared with the woman that he was the one who gives living water. He said, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. John 4, 10. God meets us where we are. She had come to the well to draw water. Jesus, the master evangelist, met her at the well, and in that context, he stated, If you were to ask me, I would have given you living water. Living water means to live. This isn't just ordinary water, the familiar H2O which we drink every day. Living water is actually life-giving. It's not just something that quenches thirst and hydrates your body, but something that gives life. The term living water also means lively or quick, meaning to have movement. 
The phrase living water is actually speaking of flowing water, but a well is not flowing water, is it? No, a well is just a collection of water. There may be a spring that bubbles into the well, but the well is not a stream. A well is not the source of flowing water. There were not many streams in Samaria. At Jesus' time and even today, Samaria was very dry and desolate. Wells or cisterns, not streams, are the main source of water. Jesus exclaimed, If you'd asked me, I would have given you running, abundant, lively, quick, flowing water. Now I think that piqued her curiosity because she replied, Where are you going to get that? There's none of that around here. Are you greater than our father Jacob? Living water not only gives life, but it is also flowing, running water. That kind of water is always fresh. Water that sits gets stagnant, and algae grows on its surface. Have you ever camped by a pond or small lake? Many times there's a shallow, reedy area along one or both sides of the pond. Would you want to go there, stick in your cup, and get a drink? No way. That water is unpalatable. It has microscopic organisms growing in it. If you put it under a microscope, it would be very interesting. That's what happens when water sits. It's living, that's for sure, but it's not filled with the life I'd want to drink. God doesn't give us stagnant, algae-filled water. God gives us living, running, pure, refreshing water. That's the kind of water Jesus was offering to the woman the water that would completely satisfy her spiritual thirst. I hope you enjoyed this portion of God's Transforming Grace. We'll see you next time. God bless.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week. Thank you.